the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. Have you ever just wanted to defend yourself and you start talking and the more you start talking to defend yourself, the more you make matters worse? I'm not asking really for a show of hands because I know that that's the fact for all of us. At some point, you've tried to defend yourself and in the process of defending yourself, you've made matters worse. You know what I love here about Jesus? This is a wonderful, important lesson for all of us to learn. Sometimes your silence is your best witness. When accused of a crime, the easiest response is to defend yourself. However, as Pastor Gary shares in today's message, often the best answer is silence. More often than not, in the process of defending yourself, you make matters worse. But as Jesus demonstrated, sometimes silence is the best witness. Can you think of a time when silence would have served you better than running your mouth? This act of self-control won't come easy. So ask the Lord for wisdom to stay silent. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 14, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So uh, where we left off last week was at the place of Jesus' arrest. He just finishes praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. Uh, He has spent now uh, the better part of the wee hours of the morning, somewhere now uh, uh, probably between midnight and 3 a.m., just uh, praying with uh, great intensity, so much so that the Gospel of Luke tells us that, that he perspires droplets of blood because the capillaries in his head and his brow begin to burst under such agony and uh, excruciating anxiety when he knows that the cross is before him. And uh, yet Luke also adds that an angel came and ministered to him, and thankfully the angel does so because none of his disciples are, are watching with him. They're all snoozing and snoring and so on wood. And uh, when Jesus comes back to see what they're doing, uh, three different times, in fact, he finds them sleeping. Well, now he has this resolve. He's prayed up and he's ready. And so when he goes back and finds them sleeping yet again, he says to them, arise, here comes my betrayer. My betrayer, of course, a reference to Judas, one of the 12, who does betray Jesus for the price of 30 pieces of silver. And when when Judas comes to Jesus, it is again in the middle of the night, and he has told the Romans that the way that he will give away Jesus's identity is that he will kiss Jesus. Again, Not that Jesus wouldn't be recognized because he's been in the public courts and in the temple courtyard teaching and uh, he's very well known and very popular among the people still at this point. 
But because it's the middle of the night and not everybody will necessarily be able to see Jesus clearly, so Judas is going to betray him with a kiss. And it is the Greek word kataphileo. And it is a word that means a passionate kiss. This isn't just a peck on the cheek. That Judas, when he betrays Jesus, he betrays him with a passion. If you have ever felt betrayed by someone, please know Jesus knows full well and even more so what it's like to be betrayed. And if anyone has wronged you in a way that you thought they were a close friend and you, and you thought that they were a faithful spouse or, or you thought that they were whatever in a relationship that they turned out to be not as loyal as you had hoped and thought and believed, not as faithful as you had hoped and thought and believed, Jesus knows your, your pain and your suffering and he knows your betrayal because he experienced it at, at its greatest, worst example. Judas betraying him with a kiss. And, and Jesus uh, answer, uh, said in verse 48, here in Mark 14, he said in verse 48, Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, and you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Note that because all of this, while it is tragic and it is our, our hearts, are, we read this stuff and, and we just melt with just sorrow for what Jesus went through. You know, and when we begin to read here a little bit in a bit here what Pilate did and thinking about how the, the Jews betray him and Pilate orders him to be crucified and all this kind of, you know, you, you want to say, oh, does this have to happen this way? But it does because all scripture must be fulfilled. This is the ultimate plan of God for the redemption of mankind. There's no other way that we might be saved. There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved, is what Luke writes in the book of Acts. So it's the name of Jesus, and Jesus had to be crucified and suffer and die His death so that we might have life through faith in His name. His death is a substitutionary death so that we wouldn't have to be punished for the sins that we've committed. Our sins and our punishment was placed upon Him, the prophet Isaiah says. And by His stripes we are healed, we are made whole, we are forgiven. So Scripture had to be fulfilled. This was God's redemptive plan from the beginning of time. And so verse 50 says, And then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, this is a reference probably to John Mark, the one writing this. A young man, he was about 12 at the time, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is where we left off. So verse 53 says that they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. So Jesus is brought in here in the middle of the night to the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council at the time. They had limited power because Israel was under the Roman Empire. One of the things that they were no longer able to do was to exercise capital punishment. If, according to Jewish law, the Sanhedrin found that someone was guilty of a capital offense an offense against the law of God that would result in death, they could not execute the person because in A.D. 7, just about 23 years before uh, this particular time, the Romans had taken away uh, the right of execution from the Jews. So they could still 
condemn according to Scripture, they could still judge according to Scripture, but if it was a capital offense, they had to go to Rome and to the Romans and to the governor or to the, the prefect, or this time it's going to be Pilate, to ask permission to, to kill, to execute. Now, they didn't always follow their own rules. You remember the book of Acts when Stephen was stoned to death. They took it upon themselves to go ahead and execute him, and they bypassed Rome. But the reason why they're going to be careful to go through Pilate in this story is because, again, Jesus at this time is still pretty popular with the people. They don't want to riot. So they're going to go to Rome. They're going to get Rome to kill him. Then they'll get the Jews who don't believe in Jesus and who want to see him dead. Then they'll get what they want, but their hands will be clean, if you will, because technically Rome has been the one to kill Jesus. But of course, they're their hands aren't innocent in all of this matter. They even say, let his blood be on us and on our children. They even take the consequence for his ultimate crucifixion. But they're going to make sure that they go through Rome on this because they want Jesus to be killed, but they don't want to riot because he's still pretty popular. Now, what we find here in this, what, what I'll call kind of in quotes, the trial of Jesus, is that when you look at all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that there is a series of events that transpire and places that he goes and places that he comes back. And so I compiled for you a list of really from all the Gospels uh, how Jesus gets handed off. The first thing that we're reading about here in Mark 14 is when they first take him to Annas and they, they have an illegal night court of the Sanhedrin. Now, let me back up. The Sanhedrin was a council of elders and chief priests that numbered 70 there were 70, and they needed 23 for a quorum, according to their own rules. And they adopted this council after, in the book of Exodus, when Moses selected 70 leaders or judges to help him administrate judgment within the community of the Israelites. So this is a carryover from the ancient story of Exodus. There are 70 men here, a part of this Jewish ruling council, plus the high priest, plus the high priest. Now, there were two high priests, the Gospels tell us, at this particular time. One was Annas, and then his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Caiaphas is going to be the second place that they take him. It's point number two. They're going to take Jesus to him in the early morning hours, and they're going to have then a, a second trial, if you will. But Annas was the one recognized really by the Jews. So he is the Jewish recognized high priest because he is the legitimate descendant of the clan of Levite, of, of Aaron. What happens, though, is when the Roman Empire takes over Israel, they want their own appointed high priest because the Romans want to be able to dictate how some things are done on the Sanhedrin. So the Romans appoint Caiaphas, who happens to be the son-in-law of Annas. So sometimes through the Gospels, we read about Annas the high priest, Caiaphas the high priest. It's because there's two at the time, one that Rome recognizes, who is Caiaphas, and one that really the Jews recognize, and that is Annas. And so in this chapter, Mark 14, they first take Jesus here to Annas, but it's this illegal court in the middle of the night. Even the Jewish Mishnah, which was written about 150 years before Jesus, and it was kind of a commentary on the Old Testament law. It was completed about 200 years after Jesus. So it was about 300 years, that, 350 years or so, that, that the Mishnah was written as kind of a commentary. It's a series of books that the rabbis would write as commentary on the Old Testament Scriptures. And according to the Jewish Mishnah, 
it talks about some of the standards that the Sanhedrin had to follow. One of the things I'm going to read right out of the Mishnah, it's the Sanhedrin section 4.1. It says, in capital cases, in a case involving potentially the death penalty, they had to hold the trial during the daytime, and the verdict must also be reached during the daytime. And then, in capital cases, if a verdict was reached of acquittal, then the person could be released on the same day. But if a verdict was reached of conviction, they had to wait a whole nother day. They imposed their own standard that they would sleep on it and not impose sentence until the next day. They're going to violate their own rules of order in this illegal court that they're having Jesus stand before them to, to endure. So this is the middle of the night. He's first taken to Annas, then he's going to be taken to Caiaphas in the early daylight hours. We'll read that in chapter 15. Then in chapter 15 of Mark, he's going to be taken to Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Pilate's going to say, well, he's technically a Galilean, so you need to take him to Herod. So then they're going to take him to Herod, that Luke tells us, and then he's going to go back to Pilate. Mark 15 tells us, Luke also tells us the same thing, and then Pilate is going to condemn him and crucify him. So nobody wants to deal with this, as you can see. Nobody wants, this is a hot potato. So they're all passing the, each, Annas is like, why don't you give him to Caiaphas? Caiaphas is like, why don't you give him to Pilate? Pilate is like, why don't you give him to Herod? Herod is like, take him back to Pilate. And Pilate at this point, at the end of all of this, is going to be like, well, I guess there's nowhere else to turn, so I got to do something. And even then, he doesn't want to crucify Jesus, and he hopes that they will opt to take Barabbas instead of Jesus. So the whole thing is, nobody really wants to do this. They don't, they don't want the blood on their hands. The only people who really want him dead are the Jewish leaders here. And they're going to end up even inciting the crowd against Jesus. This is all this scene here that is unfolding here. And it tells us in verse 56, again, it says, Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. They have false witnesses and conflicting testimony. They're still going to convict him. But they're going to convict him because of what Jesus says that they don't believe. So keep reading. Verse 57 says, And then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Now, by the way, make a notation in the margin of your Bible there in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, and I'll read it. What they're trying to quote is something that Jesus said, and John tells us what he said and then explains it. In John 2, 18, it says this, Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So it's kind of a play on words where he talks about destroy this temple, go ahead and crucify me, but in three days it's going to rise again. And he speaks of of his own body rising from the dead. They thought he meant the temple there in Jerusalem that had been built and Herod had refurbished. They're saying, well, it it took dozens of years for this to be built. How can you raise it in three days? But it tells us that he was speaking of his body. That statement is used against him here. And you get these false witnesses who come forward and say, well, he said he was going to destroy the temple. You know, so he's this rebel, you know, he, he, it's, it's this sedition, he's against Rome, he's against us. 
Keep reading here. It says in verse 60, Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? You know, the, the high priest is basically saying, you know, defend yourself. Say something here. The high priest can't get witnesses to agree. They're false witnesses with conflicting testimony. So the high priest is getting exasperated here because he wants something to accuse Jesus of. And this is what he's going to accuse him of. He then asks him, are you not going to answer? What is the testament? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, here's the direct question. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Are you the Christ? Now, the, the word Christ is just a Greek word, Christos. The Hebrew equivalent is Mashiach. Mashiach is Messiah. He's asking Jesus point blank, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Now, up to this point, Jesus had kept his mouth shut. He is going to answer him, but please note with me, again, underline it in verse 61, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Have you ever just wanted to defend yourself and you start talking And the more you start talking to defend yourself, the more you make matters worse. I'm not asking really for a show of hands because I know that that's the fact for all of us. At some point, you've tried to defend yourself, and in the process of defending yourself, you've made matters worse. You know what I love here about Jesus? This is a wonderful, important lesson for all of us to learn. Sometimes your silence is your best witness. Sometimes your silence is your best witness. At this point, when I was studying through this chapter, I started looking through and researching through Proverbs to look at all the different places. You know, interesting, something I didn't find? Something I didn't find, actually, I don't know any place in the Bible where it tells you, hurry up and talk. No place in the Bible are you going to read where it says, hurry up and talk. A lot of places in the Bible, however, are going to say, keep your mouth closed. Let me give you a couple for those of you who like to take notes and see if maybe this will minister to you. I know there's a sigh, but we can all relate. Proverbs 10:19, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Here's another one. Proverbs 17:27. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even tempered. How about this one in Proverbs 29:20? Do you see a man who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And Proverbs 21, 23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity. Amen? There are times that we should just say nothing. Now, I might irritate somebody else because they want you to speak up and defend yourself, say something, argue with me. But it's sometimes best just to say nothing. And here's the thing. Sometimes people will come up to me and say, you know, I was accused of this or I was maligned in this way. And, uh, you know, should I defend myself? And here, here's what I honestly believe, that God is a better defender of us than we are. Yes, there might be times where, you know, we have to say something. But I think the least that we have to say the better, and let God defend us. Because God does a whole lot better job. The truth will ultimately come out. Again, you know, not in every single case. Sometimes, you know, you're hauled before your boss and you have to give an account. You have to answer. But when we start to grovel and defend ourselves because we want to be made known as being right, 
we often make a mess of it, and God is a better one to defend us than ourselves. And in Jesus' case here, he just, he doesn't need, he's, he's being falsely accused. All these people are saying, they're misquoting him, and he doesn't respond and say, that's not what I said. Come on. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. That's not what I said. Jesus doesn't do any of that. But when he's asked directly this question, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? Notice Jesus says in verse 62, I am. I am. Now, in English, those two simple words seem innocuous to us, but he's actually echoing the same words of Exodus chapter 3 when Moses, before the burning bush, said to God, who should I say is sending me when the Egyptians ask and when the Israelites ask, and God responds from the burning bush, you tell them, I am has sent you. I am. And it is a Hebrew word that means the self-existent one. Well, you know the interesting thing is that the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, in Exodus 3, in that conversation between God and Moses, are the Greek words ego eimi. And they are the exact words that Jesus uses right here. Ego eimi. Jesus is saying... I am. I am the great I am. And they know that's what he means. Look at what he also says. He says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. In other words, he's saying, you stand in judgment of me now, but there's a day coming when I will return as the ultimate judge. But because he says, I am, and to a Jew's ear, they would have heard that in Hebrew and Aramaic, actually, in Jesus' day, and they would have known that actually what Jesus is asserting is his divinity. He is saying, I am the self-existent one. I am the same one who from the burning bush said to Moses, I am. I'm that God. I am. And for that reason, verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked? You, speaking to the rest of the Sanhedrin, have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Now, it's blasphemous to, to his ears, to the high priest's ears, because he doesn't believe that Jesus is God. Of course, Jesus is saying the truth, so it's not blasphemous. But because they're hearing it with Jewish ears, they know what he's asserting. He is asserting his divinity. Jesus is saying, I am God. And for that, the high priest, not believing it, tears his clothes. It's a sign of grief. And he identifies it. He says, no, this is blasphemy. He says to everybody else in the Sanhedrin, you hear this is blasphemy? This guy, basically, has just proclaimed to be God. We don't need any more witnesses. It doesn't matter about the rules of order. It doesn't matter anything else. This guy needs to be condemned. What do you think? And it says, reading on, they all condemned him as worthy of death. Because blasphemy was a capital offense in, in the Old Testament law. Then... Some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Now, these are not Roman soldiers. These are the temple guards. These are the Jewish temple guards who stand guard at the temple court area. And they take him, it says, and they beat him. So imagine here that Jesus, God in flesh, is standing here. He's identifying himself for who he really is. And he is being spat upon. He is being beaten. The prophet Isaiah says that his beard is being plucked from his face. And the temple guards take him and they beat him further. And in Isaiah chapter 52, it tells us that he was beaten so badly. Listen to the words of Isaiah 52, verse 14. 
Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. What does it mean? It means, have you ever seen the Passion of the Christ? That picture of just how distorted his face was, that if you didn't know him, you wouldn't recognize him? That's what Isaiah says. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Mark on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can also download our mobile app. Find the On The Go link under the Teachings tab. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. We also meet on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Cornerstoneconnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. We'd love to meet you, but if you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our 11.45 a.m. service also offers interpreting for those who speak Spanish. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, we'd be honored to talk with you. Send us an email at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but thanks for joining us to study the book of Mark. We hope you'll tune in again here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know